Welcome to episode nine. So we'll be talking today to Ben Carpenter. Ben is one of our transplant consultants at UCLH. What's really interesting about this podcast is that we're going to be looking in the history of transplant, where it came from and how it's evolved to what we see now on the wards. And we're also going to be looking at different types of transplant, what's a better option for the patient, so what, what could be ideally first choice and second choice. We're also going to be looking at the administration of stem cells and comparisons between peripheral blood stem cell transplants and bone marrow transplants. Hi Ben, thank you for coming. Um, Thanks very much for inviting me. We're excited today to talk about transplants. So we'd like to know, I think it'd be really interesting to know, where the first, well where did it come from and how long has it been going on? Some of the first reasons that people started becoming interested in transplanting hematopoietic stem cells come from the histories of back in, in war and accidents, in actual fact. So, for example, people exposed to ionising radiations back in the Second World War, Hiroshima, etc. So instantly some people were killed, but some people died of bone marrow aplasia and infections and complications of bleeding, etc. as a result of bone marrow failure, really. And so that obviously got some people thinking, and over the following years and in, in the, into the 40s, there was a chap in Paris who heard of some scientists in the former Yugoslavia who'd actually accidentally managed to irradiate themselves. Um, and <laughs> so, yeah, but, yeah, but yeah, with a, um, obviously playing around with a reactor of some variety, I don't, I don't wow. know the details. And I think there were six of them, and one of them died quite quickly, but five of them went across to Paris, and they were given volunteer donor bone marrow, and they had transient engraftment of that bone marrow that was credited, whether it was or, or not. So, uh, obviously, it's buried in the midst of time. It was credited with reducing their period of cytopenia. It does sound as though they then rejected that bone marrow and ultimately had uh, endogenous their own bone marrow come back up again. But people starting to play around these things has, has been around for you know the best part of 100 years now. But really where it started to come into be used more, with more interest was the fact that, particularly in animal models, we know that modalities like radiotherapy, so for example total body radiation, is very effective at killing leukaemia cells. So looking in ALL, acute lymphoblastic leukaemia and AML, how could you team up giving what is a very potent therapy with radiotherapy alongside being able to rescue them with healthy bone marrow? And if you took the bone marrow from someone who obviously has not been exposed to that, you can then rescue the patient so you can give them the therapy of the radiotherapy and rescue them with someone else's bone marrow. And so obviously the way that we think about it has changed over the years, but that was some of the initial premise and people like Donald Thomas who's an American haematologist who is sort of one of the godfathers of transplant did various experiments uh, with dogs in the first instance and they observed some of the things that we recognize more clearly today that if you use the dog's own bone marrow they did very well and they recovered after being irradiated if you used a litter mates they did less well but they did better than if you used an unrelated dog's bone marrow. And that's starting to tease out this secondary or um, immunological process that they saw and they witnessed with weight loss and wasting of the animals that we now recognise as, as graft-versus-host disease. And into the um, 60s, it became very attractive to be able to team up things like TBI, total body radiation, and chemotherapy as a therapeutic modality with bone marrow transplant. But also, right back at the beginning, which we've almost come full circle to now, is other conditions like aplastic anemia, primary immunodeficiencies. If you've got a hemoglobin, uh, bone marrow opathy, is it where you've got something wrong with your bone marrow and you can give a bone marrow from someone who's got a healthy bone marrow, can you fix that problem? 
But the fact is that when you look at results of transplants done in the 70s, the outcomes were really very poor with, with not very many survivors either from relapse or from the procedure itself. At what point did immunosuppression come in? Was that right back at the beginning or was that kind of... <laughs> I know, I mean, early on they tried to, I think, introduce things like methotrexate post bone marrow okay. I wouldn't be able to tell you when all of those things came in. Yeah. But it was realisations about the um, HLA system or mm -hmm. the human version of the major histocompatibility system, which is obviously the proteins that we now look at on cells of the immune system to try and match people. We started to realise that that is why you're having these immunological responses and you're having these problems from rejection of the bone marrow itself to causing graft-versus-host disease in the recipient. And the realisation that if you matched those proteins more closely, the outcomes became better and you got less rejection and you got less GVHD. But as they, as they did these transplants and got more experience, particularly in a malignant setting, so in a leukemia setting, one of the things that became apparent is, is that if you used a um, completely matched twin or nobody had any graft-versus-host disease, their relapse risk compared to those that had a limited amount of graft-versus-host disease was, was a lot higher. And so that started to form the, the doctrine of graft-versus-lymphoma or leukemia effect and the fact that at the expense of risking things like graft-versus-host disease you actually get a therapeutic or immunological effect against the disease. So it's not just against the host causing problems, it can also be against the disease. And that was really one of the big steps forward into thinking about doing reduced intensity transplants. The fact that it's not just the chemotherapy or the radiotherapy and the chemotherapy that you're giving that has a therapeutic effect, it's also the fact you've got a new immune system and the immune system is doing some of the work as well. And it's interesting that we're now coming on to trying to refine down just to that effect by giving things like CAR T cells where you're actually just giving the active part to the patient to try and get the therapeutic effect. Do you see that as a continuation then? Is this where a transplant is heading leaving the whole transplantation and not being from someone else now, it's about refining maybe something autologous? Yeah, so I, I, mean, I can see that happening and uh, as we get more sophisticated in terms of how we can manipulate cells and we actually want to give the cells that give you the therapeutic benefit and I suppose the things we've got to separate out as, as we're, we're talking it through is the fact that we do have things like reduced intensity transplants that has actually helped expand doing transplantation for non-malignant conditions as well so um, primary immune deficiencies is one of the most obvious ones that's just been commissioned in, in adults certainly and has been around in children from some time but it's made it more possible to give transplants to people who've perhaps got a lot of pre-existing problems because of recurrent infections and the organ damage as a result it's made it more accessible to them but your your target is obviously different in there because it is important that you get the new bone marrow so that is going to be difficult to get round um, in terms of using things like cars but by being able to go back and manipulate stem cells that is something that we can get around but if you're looking in the malignant setting, then yes, it's really appealing to be able to just take the, more often than not, the lymphocytes and be able to reprogram them and target them against disease. And if you think about, for example, a body's natural response against a virus, which is what lymphocytes are there to respond to, if you look at CMV, you would have a number of different clones, you'd have a number of different groups of, of lymphocytes responding against an infection to help control it. And even then, we know things like CMV still hide in the body. So even if you've got a number of different groups of T-cells responding against infection, 
it can still only suppress it, but that might be enough. And so that's the next step that we're seeing in, in CAR T cells, that a number of different targets are being targeted at the same time. But you know, maybe you need three or four or five different populations of CAR T cells given back to really be able to control the harder to treat diseases. And within the CAR T cell world, we know that we can have loss of the proteins that that specific CAR T cell is responding to or acting against and then get relapse. But in the same way, you give lots of different chemotherapy agents that are hitting the malignancy from different points. If you had a number of different populations of CAR T cells, it seems logical that that would be able to better control disease, but we'll have to wait so and see. It's isn't it? The future can hold for all these new therapies. Yeah, and immunology is fascin fascinating, and we all find it fascinating, but it's being able to manipulate that and being able to repurpose it is, is, is really fantastic. And as we get more sophisticated in terms of how we can um, do that, it, it, it does seem as though this is the potential for really having cures for not only hematological cancers, but hopefully, I think it'll be a harder nut to crack, but also lots of solid tumours as well. And then on the non-malignant side, as we're starting to see here at UCLH, there's the prospect of taking your hematopoietic stem cells from a patient, harvesting them from them, but also then using gene therapy to insert a copy of the gene that needs correcting in those cells to then be able to give that product back to the patient after giving them conditioning. Um, to hopefully cure them of whatever the disease was that their marrow was unable to do, whether that's a red cell problem or there's going to be a number of different targets that you know that you'd be able to attack by that route. But the fact you can take the stem cells out of the body makes it a really good, attractive use of gene therapy. And then in terms of you can refine gene therapy further, in terms of if we use viruses at the moment to introduce uh, the new gene into these cells, there's obviously question marks about that. The, the gene can actually be inserted sometimes at random into the genome of those hematopoietic stem cells. Can you do that in, in better ways? Can you use gene editing tools? I think technologies like CRISPR to actually go in and correct the gene and then be able to give those cells back. And there's some obviously exciting refinements you can do with that. There are now ways you can produce lots of stem cells without using the conventional um, gene therapy. You can expand up stem cells. So it would be really interesting if you could take one stem cell, correct it, see that you've corrected it without inserting extra copies of genes in the wrong places or where areas where you would worry that you're going to generate perhaps uh, unfavorable characteristics and so unfortunately early on in the gene therapy we did see some children develop leukemia because of the genes being inserted in the wrong places that's not been seen with the more recent technologies and way of doing it but we want to do this in as clean way as possible if you can just correct the gene and then you could take just a handful of stem cells that you've characterized really well you know they look very safe and then you can expand them up and maybe you give them on one occasion or maybe you give them on multiple occasions to top people up maybe that would be enough and so that's I think really really exciting and in terms of being able to do those procedures more safely the other aspect is how can we deliver the conditioning treatment better so we talked right back at the beginning about total body irradiation chemotherapy which are very blunt ways of being able to myeloablate someone to wipe out their existing bone marrow and immune system but you can imagine that perhaps you could give a group of antibodies or radio-labeled antibodies. And that's some of the early studies already open here, like the RIT study, which uses a radio-labeled antibody to help target the bone marrow and then wipe out the bone marrow. So like replace conditioning regimes yeah. that we use already. 
So, th so in this trial, they use an antibody that's conjugated to uh, something that will deliver um, radiation to wherever that antibody is. So in the locality, so it localizes the bone marrow and it will radiate the cells and kill the cells around it. It is coupled with conventional chemotherapy at the moment because we don't know, but perhaps in a, I mean, obviously you're still using radiotherapy or ionizing radiation, and so. We don't know how much safer that is, but if we're targeting and refining it down, we hope that that would be and safer. Less toxic. And less toxic, yeah. Affecting more of the less of the body. Exactly. So rather than irradiating the whole of somebody, you are delivering it to the areas that you want to you want to ablate, which is the bone marrow. It's not just specific to the bone marrow, but you know, you can see that this is an evolution of being more targeted to be able to maybe clear the bone marrow, immune suppress somebody without giving conventional chemotherapy or radiotherapy would be very nice. And then you can use these other therapies alongside. Do you think the rate of change in hematology is, is increasing in terms of therapies? Or is this, is this just the continuation of new developments? Or do you think it's kind of getting, it's, getting faster? Um, I think it's getting faster. That There are also more roadblocks in the way of, of progress. And so, for example, undertaking trials is as we know in our day-to-day -day jobs, is um, there's a big burden of um, work that that means um, for any um, hospital and group of people who are taking on trials. So I think that's one of the things that does slow things down to a degree. But I think there's so many scientific advances that have made us um, able to do so much more so quickly. Um, if, you, you know, if we look 20 years ago, how long it took to sequence someone's genome and if you now want to sequence someone's genome, you can do that in an afternoon. And so if you look at that rate of change, then there are things that are happening much, much quicker. And technology, I think, is moving forward at a pace. It's just whether or not we can engage with our patients in a, in a good way and the regulatory authorities to make sure that we are, in a, a safe as possible and sensible way, being able to give people access to these things if that's what they choose. And I suppose funding for trials well would be... Yeah. Cause it's, a massive, it's a massive expense, and that's the thing. There's going to be less and less people, I'm sure, and bodies that are able to fund them. And so I think that is a concern. And there's all sorts of pressures on the NHS as well. It's making sure that it, when it is so exciting that we're able to have the service that can keep on delivering these things, I think that's one of the big challenges that we've got to and do it and look at. do it safely. Yeah. Yeah. So going back to the transplant itself, so there's quite a few types we see on the ward. Yes. You've got your hat flow, you've got, you mentioned twins, you've got sibling, you've got unrelated, you've got cord, double cord. You don't have to go into all of them. <laughs> but, um, How do we go about choosing? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So the majority of the time, if um, somebody has a matched sibling, or actually we should also say a matched family donor, then they're going to be towards the top of the list and normally at the top of the list, so particularly a brother or sister. And that's because they will be able to check to see if they are HLA matched. If they are HLA matched, they will be matched obviously for those proteins, but because they, you have the same mother and father, there will be lots of other things that we don't actually look at that we will also know there's a much higher likelihood of you being matched for with your brother or sister. So we are looking at 10 different proteins and now sometimes 12 different proteins of the HLA system. So we will often talk about a 10 out of 10 or a 12 out of 12 match. And so that's what people are referring to. That is really important. But as I said, if it's a brother or sister, there will be other proteins that you share because you have the same genes from your mother and father. And so that's why it is an extra good choice. There's a much better safety profile by using that person as a donor. After that, it becomes a little bit more complicated. 
historically we would accept a 10 out of 10 or 10 out of 12 donor. The least matched donor that we would go for still currently is a 9 out of 10 donor. Anything less than that, we would avoid using them as a donor. If you're getting into that territory, we then look at other characteristics of the donor, such as things like CMV status. And CMV or cytomegalovirus is a really important virus post-transplant because it causes a lot of problems for our patients. If you are seropositive for CMV, i.e. you've had it before, if we give you a transplant really of any sort where we are significantly immunosuppressing someone, so this is an allogeneic transplant, there is a very, very strong likelihood that you will reactivate CMV. Unfortunately, in my career, I don't see it as much as we once did, but things like CMV pneumonitis. We also have seen some people with encephalitis is a really unpleasant disease that we don't want to see. We screen and we preemptively treat, but as we all know, those treatments can be quite difficult for the patients. They can be nephrotoxic, drugs like foscarnet, understandably are, are drugs that we have to be really careful with. And so that's why knowing someone's CMV status is important. So if the person having the transplant is CMV positive, we will look for a CMV positive donor. So if you had a 10 out of 10 match, but CMV positive, yep. and the patient was negative, or you had a 9 out of 10 HLA match without CMV, which one, which one would you we go would, with? We would go with the, with the HLA matching first. That would, that, that would, that would be... Yeah. So for the 10 out of 10. Yes, that's what we go to. And also, it does slightly depend on which way around it is. So if some, if the patient having the transplant is CMV positive, then them having a CMV negative donor is the least good situation because what that means is that they're very likely to reactivate CMV because they've got it hidden in their body, it's dormant, and then the cells that they're getting from their donor at no level have seen CMV before. They might be able to respond to it, but obviously we give lots of drugs, things like Kempath, that washes around and is lymphodepleting on an ongoing basis. And so that means that that response is going to be blunted because that's what we're attempting to do to try and prevent graft-versus-host disease. And that's why in this country we're much bigger fans than in lots of other parts of the world that we give lots of T-cell depletion and very often with Kempath or Alamtuzumab. And so what that's meaning is that we see less severe GVHD but that's at the expense of the fact that you're going to see more infections like CMV. If we only have a 9 on 10 donor, it then is a little bit more of a debate about whether, if present, there's a haploidentical donor. And what we mean by that is, is that they have inherited half of the HLA proteins from either their mother or father, but the other half is unmatched. So this is, sorry, I should say we're talking about a sibling. So they only share 50% of the same proteins as their brother or sister, or actually it could be there mother or mum or dad and so if they're only half matched we now know by using things like post-transplant cyclophosphamide that we can actually deliver these these transplants safely and it's very immunologically interesting why you can you can do this by doing something that is relatively simple in terms of the deployment of the post-transplant cyclophosphamide but it does work and it is actually pretty safe and much safer than we thought ever thought it was going to be and so as the experience gets greater then it may be that this starts to contest the role of certainly mismatched unrelated donors and maybe in time even matched unrelated donors because if you come back to it again because they are 50% matched with the same mum and dad often then there will be other things that they have that match as well and so maybe that's why there's some of the difference we don't know for sure. 
but haplo-identical transplants is definitely much more in vogue. And also, it's important for a number of groups where they perhaps historically don't have as many donor options. So if you're from an Afro-Caribbean background, then your chance of finding a matched unrelated donor is much, much less than if you're from a Caucasian background. And so being able to have almost a universal donor, um, it's not absolute, but you've got a very good chance of having a haplo-identical donor in your family. So that's why that's exciting, on top of the other fact that we can know that we can do it safely. In terms of the core transplants, which you touched on as well, in terms of getting stem cell numbers, if you are a, a decent-sized teenager or an adult, you need to have a two cord units. In paediatrics and, for example, our colleagues over at Great Ormond Street, they often will have children that are recipients that can just have one cord. And, gen- and, and in certain c- circumstances, they have got good results. Whereas, you know, certainly in our hands, we have found that um, double cord transplants can be difficult to deliver. That We have seen quite a lot of infections and it takes longer for the cells to engraft. And that's probably just a cell number thing. And the fact that you need to have two cords to try and match as well. And so that makes it more complicated. And so far, that has meant that certainly our practice is is to use those donors less and less now. But, for example, coming back to the fact that we're going to be able to manipulate stem cells in the future, maybe if you had a very nicely matched cord unit, could you take those stem cells and could you expand them up in the lab? There's all sorts of possibilities. May cord have a come, make a comeback, you know. But I suspect if we become that adept, then we'll probably take the patient's own cells and be able to make stem cells. But, you know, this is something that's uh, a good way off. So I suppose with, so with the cord, if there's a slower engraftment, there's just more risk of... Yeah. infections in the meantime before you recover your counts yeah that that you know that's one of the one yeah, of the issues i don't think many of the staff have seen many cord transplants on the adult wards here no, no i don't kings a yeah. long time ago yeah and so yeah, that's the thing it is very much out, out of vogue at the moment and it Do you is think it's haplos and the advances with haplo transplants is the reason that we see less core because there's something else i think i think that's true i think it is filling filling that space and so you know, safety, efficacy is, is always going to be at the top of your list, but also being able to deliver something in a straightforward and timely manner, which you can if you've got a haploidentical transplant, all of those things do get factored in because if you've got somebody who's got an acute leukemia who you've managed to wrestle into some sort of remission, if you're not ready to go at the right time, then you might wish, miss your window of opportunity. Whereas a family donor is is always so quite is a is, is quite a handy thing to have around thing person uh, <laughs> to have around. Um, and so I think it, it's a number of those things. And the problem with transplant is there's very little, if any, head-to-head trials of comparing one modality against another. And so we can't always say that we know one is better than the other. And so it is some of those other factors that, that come into the decision as well. So in, in terms of giving the, the transplant, we kind of roughly know why we don't give bone marrow much. But could you explain them the differences between stem cell and bone marrow? So peripherally, uh, mobilised <laughs> stem cells versus bone marrow. Well, there's, there's a number of reasons, and it's interesting how it, there is actually a bit of a difference between the paediatric and the adult approach. If you use PBSC, then you know that you're going to get engraftment quite promptly, and so normally within about two weeks. Um, Whereas if you use bone marrow as the donor source, then normally it's going to be somewhat longer than that and up to about three weeks. If you look at the rates of GVHD with peripherally harvested versus bone marrow harvested stem cells, in actual fact, PBSC are worse. And so certainly if you're going to do, and including here, 
Often if we're going to do a T replete, so we're not going to give any T cell depletion, then we'd use bone marrow as the source, and we certainly would do that within the paediatric world, um, because you are trying to reduce, you're trying to not give too much risk of GVHD by using a source that you know is less likely to induce it. So for example, we'd use cyclophosphamide and TBI condition transplant, give bone marrow, and then maybe give post-transplant methotrexate as the, alongside cyclosporin as the GVHD prophylaxis. Whereas the obvious, one of the issues is though is going all the way back to the donor, and this is part of the adult way of thinking, is putting someone through a bone marrow harvest compared to them having GCSF injections and being on the apheresis machine, then you're taking some of the risk away from the donor. It's felt by giving GCSF and apheresis rather than putting them through a general anaesthetic and doing a bone marrow harvest. So you're taking some of the risk away from the donor and giving it back to the patient. As well, the, the donors, we get more often than not request for bone marrow harvest um, declined, which it does seem to be more common now that we're having people say, no, I don't want to give bone marrow, I'll, I'll give you PBSCs. And so we're, see we're seeing that more and it's entirely their um, decision. We obviously need to make sure that people are briefed to the fact that we might need to come back and ask them for more sales, but it is a much more straightforward way of doing things. And so again, it's for a number of different factors that have been brought together, certainly in the adult world across the UK, PBSC would now be the, the most common source of stem cells. And it's, it's worth interesting the different groups. And so why is there a difference between where you um, get the cells from? Well, certainly the bone marrow is a, as an important repository of immunological memory. So your antigen, your infection experience, lymphocytes, B cells will go back to the bone marrow preferentially. And so you've got perhaps an over-preponderance of cells that aren't naive or ready to go cells in the bone marrow. You've got ones that are more useful for having seen various infections. And so there's likely to be a difference in the phenotype between the T cells that you get in your bone marrow harvest to that that you've collected from your peripheral blood. And also even giving things like GCSF may have an effect on the lymphocytes as well. It may change the phenotype of the cells that you collect from your blood. So in the future, would perhaps giving pleurixophor as a way of mobilizing somebody, would you get a different population of cells or even a different way of mobilizing somebody? Would it give you a different population of cells that you get if you collect them peripherally? And so these are all answered questions, but you know, it's just interesting. Because I always thought when, when we give the bone marrow, there's quite a lot of it. It's like yeah, a litre. Like, yeah. And it's a lot of fatty tissue. It's got all sorts of stuff yes. you don't want. That's what I thought. No, when I you're saying, actually, you've got experienced cells in there that have seen various things. And then you're just taking the actual stem cells that are very, very new and don't actually have any experience into... Yeah, and your immune effector cells that are in your blood, they're there looking for new infections. Whereas when they're experienced, then they all... It's not the only place, but they all tend to traffic back to the bone marrow. And the other thing is with bone marrow compared to an apheresis product is, is that if you've got a red cell major incom incompatibility, then you have to deplete the marrow, whereas you don't have to do that for an apheresis product. If there's a discrepancy in size between the donor and recipient, and then you have to process the bone marrow, you can end up with a disappointingly low number of stem cells after that's been processed. Um, and so that's the thing is, you know, you, you, those are things you will have to factor in. It's not one thing, but those are some of the considerations. So interesting. Fantastic. Yeah, brilliant. Thank you.